So over the past month, we have been in the season of Advent, looking back and, and looking forward to the coming of our King. Before Advent, we had been in a series titled, We Believe, and had been making our way through some of the, the big rocks, the big things that we believe as a denomination and, and here at Calvary. This week and from now until Lent, we are going to pick up with that series, and for the first part of it here, we'll be looking at the Lord's Prayer. This is the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, which is our text this morning, Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. This is, this is where the Lord's Prayer is instituted. Now, the Lord's Prayer is divided into seven petitions, seven things that we ask of God or, or for God. It is these petitions that will be the focus of our sermons in the coming weeks. And as we work through this series, some weeks we'll be looking and, and combining some of the petitions, while other petitions will be handled on an individual basis. Today we start with the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, which reads, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Before we get into exegeting what that means, let us read this morning's full text. If you have your Bibles with you, that text again is Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. If you left your Bible at home but prefer that physical copy, there should be a Bible in the pew in front of you. And if not, you are welcome and invited to follow along with the words on the screen. We read the word of the Lord this morning, Matthew chapter 6, 9 to 13. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. Pray this in your name. Amen. Growing up in a large family, it wasn't often that I got to do things with just one of my parents one-on-one. -on -one. I still remember the first movie I saw without any of my siblings. My father took me to watch Disney's Aladdin. The story of the street urchin who got his hands on a magic lamp and, and quickly rose to the top of my favorite movies list as a kid. There was a lot to like about the movie as a boy, but one of my favorite aspects of that movie was the relationship between Aladdin and his newfound friend, Genie. Genie was a big blue dude that lived in a small little oil lamp. Phenomenal cosmic powers. Itty bitty living space. Early on, Aladdin realizes that the Genie exists. His, his, his purpose is to grant the wishes of those that find his lamp and, and summon him. Now, there are a few addendums, a few quid pro quos that Aladdin must adhere to, but generally the genie will give him what he wants. He's essentially a slave to the desires, the demands of the young street urchin. Do we, in prayer, sometimes treat God like he's a genie in a lamp? Here are the things that I want, God. Here are the things that will make me feel good, that will meet my needs, that will get me where I need to be, that will help me survive. And, and God, I kind of need you to give them to me. 
How often is our prayer life more about what we want from God than it is about what God wants from us? We see this all-powerful being who says that he loves us, that he wants the best for us, and furthermore, we are encouraged to, to talk to him, to ask him for things, and so we do. But what we ask of him often serves us more than it serves him, doesn't it? How often have I been Aladdin rubbing the lamp and asking for the things that make my heart and life more comfortable instead of the things that would bring glory and honor to God? Can anyone else relate to that? How often does our prayer life become about us? More often than we care to admit. When Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, as we read in our text this morning, he doesn't start with our needs, does he? He gets there. It's, it's not bad to bring our needs before God. That's, that's important. It's something that we're invited to do, but it's not the basis. It's not the, the primary focus. Our need is not the fundamental element of prayer. And so Jesus doesn't start with our need. Instead, he starts by recognizing God's position, his power, his holiness. The introduction, the first lines of the prayer given to us by Jesus that we might pray them over and over again are a recognition of the awesomeness of our God. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's the King James Version. That's the way that I, I say it in my head. It, it feels weird for me to say it in any other way. We, we read it in the NIV, and for me, it's like, I, I mean, I know that that's real, but it, it just feels, it feels a little different. It, it's, it's got the art in heaven and the be thy name, which we don't find in, in most other translations of Matthew's gospel, but one word that we might expect to find changed in other translations, but typically stays the same, is the word hallowed. Not a word we use that often. In fact, I think the only times I've ever used that word is when I pray the Lord's Prayer. And it feels old-timey, right? Like they, thy, thou, and the rest, thine. But it finds its way into our modern translations as well. Why? What does the word mean? Hallowed comes from the Greek word hagiasteto. That one... It's a little rough. But hagiasteto, which means to sanctify or to be made holy. Which is kind of a strange thing for us to pray, right? Since God's name is holy, it, it just is. We have no effect on the holiness of God. He's, he's holy, period. Our praying doesn't make him more holy or, or more sanctified. So why do we pray that? Why does Jesus instruct us to pray this particular verb, that God's name might be set apart, that it might be sanctified? Martin Luther says this in the Little Red Book, in the explanation of Luther's small catechism. He writes, God's name is holy in itself, but we pray that it might be holy among us. God knows our hearts. He knows our struggles. He knows that when we have access 
when we have the ear to the most powerful being ever, that it is a part of our sinful nature to focus on ourselves and focus on what we want and what will make us feel better. And so he starts the prayer, Jesus starts the prayer with a petition that strikes at the heart of our me-focused tendencies. He begins, begins by having us recite, having us remember that our hearts need to change, that the focus of our relationship with God is not our needs, but his greatness, his power, his love, his perfection, his holiness. And in this prayer, through this petition, we are asking God to work on our hearts that we might recognize how far above us, how beyond our failings, how perfect our God truly is. May we hallow the name of the Lord. May we worship it. May we put it in the place that it belongs. May we give the name of the Lord the glory that it deserves. May God work in our sinful hearts that we would continue to grow in our understanding of God and our recognition of all that he is and all that we are not. May we worship the name of God. May we praise the name of our Father in heaven. May his name be holy among us. But for some of us, Maybe it's the holiness of God that we struggle with, isn't it? Holy means to be set apart. Being that God is perfect and we are not, he is set apart from us. And sometimes in our sinfulness, in the struggles of the day, in the recognition of, of how we've messed up and, and have been unable to fulfill the demands that he has made of us, have not been able to keep the law that he has given us, there are times that God in his holiness, in his being set apart, can feel distant. Do you feel like God is distant from you? That he is unable to relate to your struggles? That he is so far above and beyond the situations that we find ourselves in, the temptations that we fall into, the financial hardship that we're facing, the teasing that we get at school, the friends that have betrayed us, the politics of the nation, the world, and our own church? the frustrations and pain of a body that is failing us, of the sicknesses that, that we can't seem to shake, do we sometimes feel like God is too distant, too far, too perfect, too holy to relate to or care about the broken things in our lives? If that's where you find yourself this morning, struggling with a holy God, a God who feels distant, I hope that you will wrestle with these words that were written by a good friend of mine, a, a fellow LB pastor. His name is Jason Lang. And he wrote this a few years ago. Holy means set apart. And yet though God is set apart in his holiness, he does not keep himself removed. What a fantastic biblical way to view God's holiness. Though he is set apart, he does not keep himself removed. And we can have a hard time with that one, can't we? Because typically we're used to seeing those that are in a better position keeping themselves removed. Back in the days of castles and kings, the towns weren't always behind all of the castle's most protective walls. Often when an invading army came to town, the people in the villages were the first to get wrecked because they were the lesser of lesser circumstances than those behind the strong stone walls of the castle proper. 
I mean, we've seen this throughout history, right? Those with money, those with privilege have set up boundaries, distance between themselves and, and others that they might keep their money in privilege and that it might not be diluted by too many others achieving certain status. This concept is littered throughout human civilization. We see it in our histories and we see it in our entertainment. From the classics like Charles Dickens' Great Expectations to the more recent fair like The Hunger Games, we see stories, we celebrate stories of people breaking through the elitist walls and claiming a piece of the pie for themselves. And our churches haven't always been free from this train of thought either, have they? I can't speak to church in other places in the world, but growing up in a Christian, as a Christian, in the age of focus on the family, there was an overarching message that encouraged the circling of the wagons and the protecting ourselves, keeping ourselves distant from those that walked in the ways of the world. And to a degree, man, I get it. We need to protect our faith. We need to protect our children. But when one brother in Christ told me that sending my kids to public school was offering them on the altar to Molech, and another told me that it was akin to performing a spiritual abortion, I was reminded of just how we too can get lost in the law and put up boundaries between ourselves and the mission that we have been called to. The words of those well-intentioned but incredibly misguided men are admittedly extreme examples dangerous and infuriating examples. But though we may disagree with their stances, their heart conditions beg the question of us. In what ways have we kept ourselves distant from those God has sent us to? What boundaries have we put up individually and as churches that God has not put up? And in doing, and in so doing, how have we too become distant how thankful I am for a God who is set apart but not removed. How do I know that my God is not removed? This past Friday was Epiphany, a Greek word which means the manifestation of Christ. When we celebrate Epiphany, we are celebrating God come to earth, Jesus manifesting here, proof that God is not distant. For he did not circle the wagons and keep his child from the broken sinners of earth, but instead he sent his son to them. He sent Christ to us, and Jesus lived among us, and he ate with us, he joked with us. Someday I can't wait to see that smile and hear that laughter. Our God did not keep himself distant. He came and was present. He healed and he taught. He led and he fed, and one day he was betrayed. And he was accused and he was wrongfully sentenced to die. And Jesus was with us so closely that he took a long walk up the hill to Calvary with a cross on his shoulders. And with that cross he carried the burden of the sins of the world. Every time that I have made my life about me, every time that I have hurt those around me, every time that I have failed my God, failed to do all that he has asked me to do, all of the times that I have been imperfect, all of the times that you have been Imperfect. All of that was given to Christ, put upon the shoulders of Christ. And when the nails went through his hands, and when he was presented on the cross, lifted up in his nakedness, the Bible tells us that Christ became our sin. He's holy, remember? He has no business taking our sin, but he refused to be removed from us. And so he became intimately aware of all that we have ever done wrong 
and all that we will ever do wrong. Instead of rejecting us, instead of spitting on us, instead of turning us away as he had every right to do, instead of abandoning us, Jesus took our sin in our place and he died for us. He paid the price for sin that we could not. But he did not stay dead. Three days later, Christ rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. And when we believe in him, when we rest in the faith that he has given us, we are saved. For the Bible tells us that through faith, the dirty rags of our sins are taken from us. And we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so when he looks at us, when he looks on those that believe in Jesus, he doesn't see our sins, but the perfection of his Son. Our God is holy. Our God is fully sanctified. Our God is perfect. And though that set, sets him apart, he has not kept himself distant. Church, let us not be distant. May we recognize all that God has done for us. May we continue to grow in the depth of our understanding of who our God is and his desires for us. And may we remove the barriers that we can, the barriers that we should, in order to reach our neighbor for the Lord. I don't know the ways that you have made yourself distant from your neighbors in the pew and your neighbors across the street, but you do. You do. How is God working in your heart that those barriers, those distances might be removed and that we might answer the call to join Jesus on his mission? How does the breaking down of the barriers emphasize the freedom that we have in Christ? The ending of Aladdin still tends to get me a little choked up. I know, I'm a little weak. Aladdin has saved his final wish. He's only used two, and in order to marry the princess, he needs to be a prince, and the genie is expecting that to be Aladdin's final wish. But instead, the street rat, the urchin, the overlooked young man wishes for genie's freedom instead. Now, Aladdin's a fun story, but it is not an accurate reflection of our relationship with God. Our Father in heaven is not a genie in a lamp given to grant the wishes of our hearts. He is absolutely willing to hear and encourages us to give voice to our cries to him, our hearts expressed in pain and joy and frustration to him. But it is not his job or intent to set things out the way that we would like them to be set out. God is not in the business of answering wishes, but church, God is in the business of setting us free. Unlike Aladdin, we do not set God free with our prayers. No, it is us who have been set free through faith. We have been set free from the bondage of sin. We have been set free from the expectations of the world. And we have been set free that we might serve our neighbor. That we might answer the call to mission that God has given each and every one of us. May we rejoice in the freedoms that God has given us. May we rest in the faith, grace, and mercy, and love that God has poured out over us. May the name of the Lord be made holy in our midst and in our hearts, for there is no other God but Him, and no other name that should be praised. He is God. He alone is holy. He alone is worthy of all praise and adoration and glory. And as we exalt in the awesomeness, the greatness, the power and majesty of our God, may we embrace 
the mission that he has called us to. What a fantastic, gracious, merciful, and powerful God we serve. Hallowed be his name. Amen.